Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Everybody, and welcome back. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the gap that's going on in the marketplace of opportunities to access capital and the right type of capital to help fuel the right kind of growth for mid and lower market companies that are privately held. Oftentimes we hear people talking about hitting the ceiling in your business. And I believe a lot of people are talking about energy and passion and just operational scale. But so many times those problems become a symptom of the true root cause, which is the lack of the right kind of capital to help fuel the right kind of growth. And obviously I'm talking about valuation growth because that's the main purpose that we want to be driving towards is growing the value of our business so we have more options. And right now, because of this gap, many times entrepreneurs have to choose between reducing their annual income in order to double down and reinvest in the business, sell the company completely, or stall growth in order to continue to make that annual income, or sell a big chunk of their company to an equity partner that can help fuel that growth. But what if there was additional options out there? And that's what we're about to talk about today, and how that has led to the emergence of growth capital helping solve this issue. Patrick and Nick are co-founders of Hill Capital, and they started by raising a $10 million fund to align investors with the right kind of return and then align that with the entrepreneurs and privately held business owners that need capital to fuel their growth. Patrick and Nick call it efficient capital. It bridges the gap for business owners who want to continue to grow while also keeping control of their company and reaping the benefits of the future value creation. Some of the things we're going to be diving into are why there are mechanical issues that don't necessarily allow traditional banks to lend via debt the capital needed to finance the growth because there's not typically enough assets for the bank to take back in case things go south. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, a business owner might have to sell the business or a large portion of their company to an equity investor who has the capital to support that growth and to fuel that growth. However, in this case, most of the upside in value creation and future distributions goes to that new equity partner, not to mention you now have a new personality that's guiding the strategic direction of your company along with you. Hence the emergence of a growth capital And Patrick and Nick bring their interesting backgrounds from finance and accounting together when they started Hill Capital to create both a forward and historical looking mindset when supporting their business and investments. Before Hill Capital, Patrick co-founded Equity Capital Markets at Northland Securities, where he was also the Director of Research and Managing Director of Investment Banking. And Nick spent the first part of his career as a CPA at KPMG. They truly understand why there's this issue out there as it relates to privately held companies and financing their growth. And the major takeaway is if growth capital is deployed correctly into strategies that increase the value of the business, it can help owners break through from a few hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA to a few million dollars in EBITDA. And this specific range in EBITDA growth will increase the options of exits that weren't possible before because the company was too small. ESOPs, private equity, you're also going to be able to attract more skill in advisors like investment bankers and just truly unlock value, wealth, and expertise and options by getting past that hump of EBITDA and value. 
if you are looking to the future and you're saying this target EBITDA, this target valuation is where I want to get to and these strategies are going to increase the value of my company and allow me to get there, then you need to look at what are the most efficient ways of getting the capital to get you to that spot. And there are only so many ways you can finance that growth. It's either from the cash from the company and there's a certain growth percentage that is allowed by the cash flow from the company. You can reduce your lifestyle, reduce the money you're taking from the business. You can take on equity partners or you can find a little bit more of an efficient way of getting the capital, like growth capital, like we're about to discuss in this episode. Obviously, where and how you get your capital and what you're going to do with it is going to depend on what you ultimately want from your business and why. That's why I would suggest checking out our next virtual cohort where six to 10 other entrepreneurs are going to be joining together to go through the intentional growth course over four weeks and four calls. So everybody gets access to the online course. They go through about two hours of material material before the calls. On the 90-minute calls, Pat and I discuss questions. We dive into case studies. We give examples. And we have a lot of collaboration between the people that are on the call. It's 14 to 50, 6 to 10 entrepreneurs. We cap it off at 10, and we've already got a couple people signed up. So check it out on our newly refined and clarified website, arcona.io. Go to the education tab, and then go down to the virtual cohort. Registration's right there on the website. If you've got any questions, feel free to reach out. Otherwise, without further ado, here's my episode with Nick and Patrick from Hill Capital. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. All right, guys, I'm looking forward to having you and uh, getting onto onto this interview because you guys are tackling a very interesting problem in the mid to lower market of financing. Lo and behold, Nick, you and I are went to the same college, and I'm excited to have you on. Is uh, it's been fun you know, getting to know other people that are that are around our age that are uh, geeking out about this stuff, and. I'm excited because we're going to be talking about the problem in the marketplace, how you guys have solved it, some of your backgrounds, and it's just going to be a free-flowing conversation. I think it'll be fun for the listeners who are tuning in because we've gotten deep into private equity structures and ESOP and my partner's constant uh, repetition of growth is expensive. So everybody wants to grow value and they want to scale, but then all of how do you do it without going bankrupt? <laughs> so... With that being said, let's uh, kind of tee it up and get a little bit of your guys' background and then how you got to where you are today and how you guys formed Hill Capital. And then we can dive into it. That sounds great, Ryan. Well, thanks for having us. And I can dive into my background first. My name's Nick Aird, and I went to St. John's University with, with Ryan back in the day. And, and while I was there, I got a degree in accounting and went right into public accounting at school, worked at KPMG for seven years and then transitioned from KPMG to do some more small business consulting, got really interested in, in small businesses and tried to help them work through their accounting finance. And while I was doing that, I met Patrick, who was raising a fund for Hill Capital. And we started talking and realizing that we could really help each other finish out the, the fundraising for this and help the, the small businesses. So 
we formed uh, a partnership. Patrick's now my business partner, and we raised the the ten million dollar fund, and we closed on that right at the end of 2018. And then we all, all 2019 kept looking for uh, businesses to invest in. Looked at 120 plus businesses, and then at the very beginning of 2020, did three investments into um, three different companies in Minnesota and deployed 2.35 million. And then now we can, you know, navigate COVID and doing all that stuff. And then find now we're continuing to look at companies and the pipeline's definitely increasing and just continue to do that and excited to share our thoughts on how to, the best way to utilize capital to grow and definitely resonate growth is expensive. And that's, that's something that we see every day. Love it. Yeah, and Nick and I, this is Patrick Donahue, have a, we have a terrific uh, business partnership because Nick has the, the accounting background and my whole background is finance. And I've always thought about accounting as today and historical looking and then finance as today and forward looking. And so uh, it's been really ideal when we've been underwriting businesses and, and supporting them. Um, we have the, the the unique background with our community to really support the businesses that we invest in. And my whole background has been in the world of investing, investment banking. I came out of college at Creighton University and then went to work for a broker dealer. And we started one of the early online brokerage platforms. Um, I had left there and, and went to work for a small independent shop and started writing research on publicly held companies and did that for a number of years and then took that practice to Northland Securities, which now today is a decently sized, you know, small mid-tier investment bank. And I wrote research on, I think, around 40 public companies. And I was the, the director of research for a period, so oversaw the, the research universe of, of many more names besides the one I was writing on. And what led me to Hill Capital, I was a approached by some people that had a desire to start an investment fund to invest more into what we'd like to call more Main Street type of businesses. And that really hit a chord with me. And, you know, we had a, we had a few meetings kind of in the evenings and stuff like that, but I jumped all in to help make it happen because the challenges that I saw firsthand with my quote Wall Street job was how disconnected Wall Street was from Main Street. And that was really important to me throughout my career to really help address the challenges and issues that face small businesses and entrepreneurs. So that's what led to the, the formation of Hill Capital Corporation. I love it. I, I refuse to go down a rabbit hole of how in sync Wall Street is right now with uh, the general economy, right? <laughs> yeah, don't get <laughs> we me don't started. Have to go down that route. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm excited to, I want to set the groundwork, guys, because uh, about the problem in the marketplace. And I will try and articulate a little bit about what I've seen over the last five, six years, and even the problem that we went through in our in our family business. And then I'll just let, let us take and run with it because we'll be talking about you know growth versus bio capital and then how you guys are going in there. We're going to be talking about how to actually fuel growth in different types of ways to get the capital. So to kind of get the, the breadcrumbs going for the listeners. But when I have seen and when I think about the numbers, and this is what you and I, all, us three talked about when we first got on the conversation uh, prior to the podcast, was you have of the privately held companies that are out there, there's 6 million that have employees. And I've, I've talked about this stat from the US Census Bureau before. And of the 6 million, like 20,000 over 100 million, 
And then you have 350,000 between 5 million and 100 million. And then there's 5.6 million companies underneath 5 million in revenue. I also talked to this general gentleman, Carl Allen, who was on here talking about uh, his, his approach in this lower market. And when I, when I look at like the ways of the, okay, if the average age of this business owner is 60 some, I think it's like 62 or 63 now, not only how do they fuel growth so that we can grow value because growth is, you know, growing value is a lot of different things, but they're going to have to invest in the business. And then there's this concept of like, okay, we have our management role and payroll, and then we have ownership. And then we can talk about that um, as we set the groundwork, but the, the challenges with the financial vehicles or, or, or even tools for the business owner to grow and invest in the business without, cause I watched this plateau hit where like someone all of a sudden is making a hundred and some thousand dollars and you're like, finally I'm here. Right. If it, cause again, I think I, one of the stats that Carl Allen was talking about is that like 95% of people that sell in the loan market started it, started the business. So they bootstrapped, they're not VC. They didn't go raise a huge fund. So then when they finally start making some money, they're like, finally I'm here. And there's a lot of these lifestyle businesses out there because you get to this point where you're like, okay, in order to hire the GM, in order to build out the ERP system, which takes me from 3 million to 5 million, I'm going to have to eat into my lifestyle. I'm going to have to reduce my annual profits to invest in the business. But at that point, either they're burnt out, there's not enough energy. So there's this massive, like, I think clog of companies that get stuck there, which then, you know, trickles into the valuation that, you know, the three multiple hamster way, I call it, you pay yeah. the, you, you get the three times where you EBITDA, then you pay the tax, you pay it on the debt. And it's like one year or one and a half years worth of your salary. And you're going, yeah, why did you points? even bother selling? Yeah. <laughs> right. So yep. you're just constantly in this like machine and like, and then we can talk about how, how to get out of that, how to grow value, how to like, you know, not sell your soul necessarily, but also not just to use a traditional bank. So I, that was a lot, but I wanted to kind of set the stage of that was the conversation that us three had that I, I think when you explain to me what you're doing and the problem you're solving, that sets a little bit of groundwork. So I'll leave yeah, it up definitely. and tee it up for whoever wants to do grab it. <laughs> that, that, that was a lot. That was a lot, but it's definitely what we see in the marketplace. And what you're describing is what we've called the capital gap. And we have a illustration on our website that really shows what that is. But I think the best way to think about it is that business owner did bootstrap it. They got to that point where they have they reached profitability. They're dropping hundred thousand dollars to the bottom line. Let's say they have three million dollars of revenue, but now to be able to break out of that and move from three million to ten million dollars and have a multiple that makes sense where you could sell your business. Where do you get the funds to do that? And you just mentioned, well, oh, well, I could cut into my lifestyle. Well, th that probably took you five to 10 years to get to that point. Do you really want to keep cutting in your lifestyle now? And so then you look for outside investors. And when you look at or, or to the bank, and we like to say there's always two sources of capital that people think about, one being the bank and one being Shark Tank. And that's the two sides of our illustration is, well, the bank they gave you maybe that initial SBA loan to get off the ground, which is a great vehicle to be able to get started. But when they start to get into this breakout phase and you need to hire a salesperson or you need to do marketing or you need to implement that ERP system, well, they don't fund that. And they aren't set, set up to fund that. That's a risky... That's a, the, the risk, it doesn't match what the capital is trying to do there. 
And so then, well, let's go to the other side. Well, these Shark Tank or angel investors, they are willing to take that risk more than willing. They're willing to take extreme risk. But what they want to see is an extreme outcome as well. A lot of people talk about power law with all their investments in angel investor. What does that mean? Well, an angel investor puts in money into 10 businesses, hoping one of them makes his entire fund. And we, we're, we said, well, what about, is there something in between that? And is there a way for us to be able to provide the capital that can allow you to take that risk, but also not have to sell a huge chunk of your business? Because you just spent the five to 10 years to be able to actually get to that point. And we don't want to have to, we don't need to take a buyout or ownership of your business. It doesn't really make sense to us. And so can we provide the capital? And then also we focus on the community as well. We bring in other entrepreneurs to help support the business owner to get through that really critical point and get over the gap. Mm -hmm. So then you have a lot more options for, for the business owner. So that is, I think the way you describe it is, is exactly the, the problem that we're trying to solve. So then before we go into even more parts of the mechanics and the deal structures and like how you guys are doing this is what can maybe one of you guys give, uh, cause we, I just had a, uh, in-depth interview about the structures of private equity from the general partners to funds, to, you know, the, um, to the platform business, to the bolt-ons, to the carried interest. I mean, I, I we went into the whole deal. And so those are the buyout where they're looking for, you know, they got a timeline buying it, growing it, selling it, usually ownership uh, and control. So explain kind of the bio versus what you, what the, the space that you guys are pioneering and, and working in. First and foremost, you know, we're highly differentiated because all of our investors and, you know, Nick and I as managers and our ambassadors, we really come at this from a very different point of view. Um, we've been very intentional looking at where and how do business owners need support mechanisms to be able to build their business? And I bring that up as kind of a prelude to answering your question because Wall Street banks, private equity firms, you know, they, not all of them, but a lot of them have really been designed to profit off of penalizing founding business owners. And I think that's one of the, the tragic flaws in, in a lot of the, 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 a lot of the ecosystem. And so the way we think about our structure is business owners first, because we know if we can support them and their journey and respect to the degree we can, you know, what they want to accomplish, we know our risk adjusted return, our risk reward ratio is, is going to be in line with what we need it to be. We didn't have to innovate this space. I, one of my, one of my you know, one of my mentors, let's call it, I, of course, don't know him personally. I have had the opportunity to meet him, but is Warren Buffett. You know, I go down to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting every year, and you look at the business model of, of Berkshire, more specifically, the mindset that Warren and Charlie have is to really to, you know, to buy, in their case, really mostly to buy and own businesses. But a lot of times they're just, you know, minority passive owners of public stocks. But it's really to, find alignment with them and to support and encourage them to continue to grow their businesses autonomously. And that's what's key. The vast majority of private equity and buyouts, and it's not a knock on their business model per se, but it's just, it's just different and people need to realize the differences. A lot of the business models is to own and control and to, you know, to buy a business and to shuffle it into an existing platform business, to merge it into something else. Um, and those are all valid business models, but 
where we get sensitive is where we see some business owners, entrepreneurs get hurt because they fully didn't understand and appreciate the deal that they were signing up for. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets to be too bad, right? And and so that's why we love doing, we're very grateful to be on this podcast. We do a lot of things to just help with, call it financial literacy for, for business owners. But we just want people to really understand and know what the differences are and why they're important. So when those big moments come in their journey, their journey to legacy, as we like to talk about, that they can make key decisions that they're not going to regret someday. Because I'm really tired of meeting business owners and entrepreneurs that that have a, you know, basically a chip on their shoulder and just have a, a, a large sense of regret because they entered into a transaction that they didn't fully appreciate the consequences of. So and I love it. And, and like the, that's kind of the whole you know, the whole purpose of the title is intentional. You have to understand this stuff to choose your own journey. Everybody yeah, wants yeah. different things and every, you know, certain things might be right for certain people, but we, you know, you have to understand how to compare them. Right. And so like Patrick, in the, the, the comparison would be is a normal private equity buyout. They're looking for cash flow. Usually, you know, prior to, uh, I think some of the dynamics in our marketplace right now and all the dry, uh, dry powder that, People were looking for two million in EBITDA and above. They can place, you know, they either use the management team or they place someone, you know, in there because there's enough cash flow to reinvest. And you know, the, but again, you're if you look at the the demographics of the marketplace, I mean, that's the top five percent of companies. So ninety five percent of companies are left high and dry of not having that private equity investment banking kind of advice you know, skill sets, resource access. But again, those comp- the private equities are firms are going in there majority control, you know, you, with their own investment thesis and, you know, hopefully something aligns, but explain your, your structure and how you, what is it, define growth capital and then your target and, the, and how you guys are different from that, that traditional structure. Yeah. Well, first off, one of the things that I think is unfortunate a lot of, uh, with a lot of investment structures and so forth is a lot of participants are incentivized to lie. Um, you know, and that's just one thing people have got to be conscious of. And it's not necessarily, a lot of times it's not even necessarily intentional. A lot of times it's unintentional. You know, we, we could go into a lot of details there, but you look at like, um, milestones or buyout structures and, and so on and so forth. And, and so they're either, you know, purposely not fully transparent or they're unintentionally gray about a lot of key terms. And so, I bring that up because one of our points of differentiation is when, when we make an investment in a business, we spend a lot of time on the front end, you know, describing who we are, how we operate and providing a term sheet and then going into underwriting that is extremely transparent and collaborative. So we start with the financial model. Um, we collaborate on that with them. We make sure that they understand you know, what their, what their, what their business can do. So, it, you know, if they already have robust internal pro formas, that's great, but we still build our own to kind of make sure we're on the same page with expectations. Um, and then the structure of our investment, we call it, uh, it's a proprietary structure. We call it an equity-based note. So as, as Nick alluded to in his early comments, we will take equity risk. We have no problems with equity risk, but one of the challenges with equity is that owning equity long-term requires a heck of a lot of capital to be paid back to equity for it to justify the risk. And that's where we've rethought that equation a bit and say, okay, 
we'll structure this so you can pay us back over time when there's free cash flows available and so forth so you can pay us back over time. And so that's where we've looked at this and we've kind of married the, the best of both worlds from an equity and from a debt perspective. You know, people like equity because they want the community, the network, the advice that can go along with it, the connections like Nick talked about, you know, it's kind of called the shark tank effect. But people like debt because um, it's very, most of the time, simple, transparent to understand. You okay, I borrow a dollar, I got to pay it back plus an interest rate, um, you know, pretty simple and straightforward. And then most importantly, debt is, is powerful for a business because it's the cheapest cost of capital that a business owner is ever going to get. And so we've looked at both of those models. But in the bigger world of finance, I'm not going to kid anybody. I mean, what we're doing is not necessarily over-the-top brilliant. We're just bringing a mezzanine finance model. Um, we don't use that term often because mezzanine finance, even to a lot of people in asset management and finance, they don't know what the heck it is, and nor should they maybe even care. But um, but there is an asset class, but it's really done with the big, big, large transactions, especially in the private equity world and so forth. But we took that type of thinking and we brought it to more main street, small business, emerging growth entrepreneurs um, in a business model that can work well for what we need for risk-adjusted returns. And as importantly, it can work well for that business owner so they can get effective capital. That's key, effective capital to help them grow. So, and, and, and Nick, I know I can tell you got a couple of things to say in this and maybe I'll, I'll kind of uh, tee it up to you too is, so I want you to touch on mezzanine financing because if anybody's familiar with it, they're going 15% interest from someone that doesn't care about my business. And it's because I ran out of all these other options. So as you're kind of, as we're kind of talking about this debt and equity, you know, equity coming with, a huge chunk of your business, you know, someone with a, a seat at the table, you know, and opinions about how you're going to run your company. And then you got the bank who just wants as many things that they can take from you as possible in order to give you the, the money that you can't currently have. <laughs> so there's obviously they're, 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 you're meeting in the middle. So maybe talk about getting, maybe give an example of like someone that's got a half a million or a million or whatever the typical cash flow is, the problems that they're dealing with, and then how you would structure this to kind of release them to grow. I think the the problem that that business owner is struggling with is, well, where do I get the capital? Because they the angel investor isn't willing to give you the capital because your your business is a three million dollar business and you wanted to get to ten million, and an angel investor is looking for a business that go can go from three to five hundred million, and that's what they're trying to take a bet on. And then a bank has already given you the the capital that they can, and they can't give you that type of risk capital, so. We're trying to meet them in the middle because we feel that can give the business owner more options. It can be kind of the right in between. So the the mezzanine finance being a mix, the best way to describe it is kind of a mix of debt and equity. And you talked about the the 15% and those types of things. Well, the reason that those rates are higher is because they're taking a different type of risk. They're not like the bank that's securitizing to hard assets or has personal guarantees into your personal assets if you don't pay. And so we structured our investment, the equity-based note, to really be able to take the same risk, be subordinated to any sort of senior debt, to take the same risk as the business owner, but also not have to have one conclusion be a success, the successful conclusion. So if we're a pure equity investor, the only way we get our return is if you sell. That's the only option. So once we invest with you, you need to sell 
because if we're any sort of normal fund, we have a 10-year time horizon and you need to sell within there or else it's not going to work for us. And we're not going to be able to raise more funds and do more things. And we just don't, I don't fundamentally believe in that that needs to be the only solution. You've spent five to 10 years building this. You want to get it to 10 million and then maybe it starts breaking out and you can start dropping, you know, two to $5 million to the bottom line. What if your ki- your children want to take over the business? What if you want to keep doing it for another 10 years, but you have an investor that starts pounding on the door saying, where's the buyer? And we just don't want to be that option. So we structure it where we can be paid back. And then we don't have to have that as be an option. Now we can participate in some upside if you do sell. And all of it's meant to be structured in a way that aligns incentives with the entrepreneur and allows them we're focused on just really how do we support them to get to that point and then let's not have a conflict when we get there and so that's that's a big reason why we've structured it that way and and allows allows everybody to have options when you get to that point where there's a lot more interest for people buying the business well and, the, and now I want to kind of tee up a, an example that I see a lot that kind of make this concrete for people where you know, if you're not taking on the equity, then you don't have to sell, which like you said, you're not locking yourself into some sort of outcome that you may or may not want or people that you don't want sitting at the table. And the, you know, that three multiple hamster wheel we were talking about and this decision to invest in the business, you know, there's this, this philosophy that we're trying to literally beat into people's heads of shift your mindset away from solving for annual income distributions in your salary shift it towards long-term value creation, which is growing my EBITDA and growing my multiple. And you have to invest in order to do that. And so if you can invest in the business in the right value drivers, which is our fourth principle, you can go from a three multiple to a seven. And if you're going from a half a million dollars in cash flow to a million, my gosh, the amount of money that you can make at the end of that but you're opening yourselves up to an ESOP potential, private equity potential, gifting the family. I mean, that weren't available to you at the half a million dollars and a multiple of three after you pay down taxes and debt, you walk away with another 700 grand. So it's a, there's just, yes, you might have a different structure of working with you guys for how that's being done. But if you're only short-sighted and you're only viewing the expense of it, you're not looking at when and how you could harvest that value or the options that you're bringing yourself. So when you, what are some of the challenges that you have when you're, t- you know, you looked at 120 deals, you know, when you're, when you're looking at this, what looks like a good investment, what are the people trying to accomplish that align with your guys's? And then what are also the bad situations that people should avoid? Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to hijack your question. I want to address it, but you brought up something really important, Ryan, that I think is just a really key piece to this whole equation. Cause you're, you're spot on with how business owners should think about, you know, the, the, the valuation enhancers and the things that they can do. And I'll tie this to, to your question as well here. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about a return on invested capital. And so we don't need and I don't expect, you know, business owners that are, that are going to go become like, you know, finance wizards and so on and so forth. But there does need to be a level of understanding to think about, you know, not all capital is equal. Yes, money costs different differently depending on the sources, but depending on what somebody's capital stack looks like and what it's achieving for them, 
So let's just say there's the base business and they needed $5 million of loan from the bank. It cost 5%. Okay, great. That's it. But now you need another million bucks and it's going to cost you 25% or whatever. You know, I think for most people off the street, they'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't take the 25%. Well, no. The, the mathematics is really simple. If that 25% is going to earn you 30% or more, no brainer, do it. You know, like that's project finance 101, right? So that's what's really important for business owners to kind of like think about whether they're selling equity or whatever the type of capital that they're bringing in and how to think about, you know, the cost of capital. But what are they achieving with that return on invested capital? Uh, because that's what's important at the end of the day, because Again, the heart of the matter, and that's why you know we love your work and what you're doing and in helping business owners understand it's that valuation enhancement, right? That's getting out of that hamster wheel. That is what is critical. And so, you, you know, your question is well, and I'll, um, let me yeah. interrupt you, Patrick, because I want to even add to that where you know I was never a finance, you know, Nick, you were in accounting and getting all smart while I was. <laughs> probably playing flip cup at sales. <laughs> I didn't understand what the cost of capital was until after we had, after we had the business and had I maybe understood this prior, I'd be in a different spot. But the, you know, the challenge is, is like, what does that truly even mean? The cost of capital. And when I really started to wrap my head around this years ago, it was like, okay, so going back to your example, Patrick, it's like, okay, if you got 25% interest, yeah. Insane example, really expensive. But like, I mean, I was sitting there talking to this entrepreneur that's a, uh, a client of ours and she was like, well, I'll just go get a partner and the partner will give me a million dollars. So I don't have to do a million dollars at, let's use your example, the 25%. And I'm like, well, that's great. But let's say, you know, if you grow the business and you're going from, let's say it's a million dollars in EBITDA and then it's 1.5, then it's two, that person's taking 25% of your distributions, potential distributions has a say when and how you do things. And when you go from a $5 million valuation to 15, they still get a quarter of that. Yeah, that's why I could, I could outline a number of examples of why 25, 50%, whatever, uh, you know, you call it a traditional interest rate is way cheaper a lot of times than bringing in an equity owner. That's why when we talk about our deals, we, we always boil it down. We encourage people to look on money on money, right? So if somebody puts a dollar in, what are they going to expect for a dollar back? Well, if, if somebody's truly buying equity and taking that type of risk, these numbers are well known because venture capitalists will tout them and everybody talks about them. They put in a buck, they want 10 to to $100 back. Now, they don't have to have that as a guarantee, right? But they need to have the opportunity to earn that type of return. Well, you start backing into the mathematics of what that looks like and what percentage of the company somebody's going to have to give up to be able to provide somebody that rate of return versus... You put in, you know, you know, this math is off the top of my head, but let's just say five years, 25% or whatever the case may be, that's equivalent of about $2 back. So somebody puts in a buck, they get $2 back. So 25% sounds high, but when you do the money on money math, it's a steal of a bargain, right? Because if that dollar that was invested today leads a business from $500,000 in EBITDA, it takes them to $2 million in EBITDA. Not only did they get the value enhancement on the EBITDA, but yeah. now they went from your, I love it, your three, you know, three time hamster wheel to seven times, right? Seven so, times two is a lot better than three times. Three times <laughs> 0. 0. 0.5, <laughs> right? It's massive. And, that, and that's, what the, that's the math that's important to, to, for a business owner to kind of scratch out or pencil out 
when they think about effective capital and what's going to work for them and their business. And I think one of the biggest missing pieces that I've seen constantly is most entrepreneurs, which they do not understand the value of their assets, which is why we just hammer in ownership thinking, which is brings you to equity discussions, right? Versus, hey, by the way, Patrick, I make a half million bucks a year. You want this 80 hour a week stressful job? And you're like, no. Yeah, well, you you pay me $4 million for this 80-hour-a-week job with all these headaches, but you get to make a half a million bucks that you can never spend versus the discussion that we're having. And it just really, and like you said, we're not trying to make anybody financiers, but to understand this concept, can understand value, and then they can understand the like what their options are. I mean, it's just, it just... You know, I love that back word to options, because the, then yeah. they have options. That's what's, that's what's key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talk a lot about any sort of money that you raise by selling equity will be the most expensive capital that you ever raise if you're successful. And if you're not, well, then you're both out of, you don't have anything. (laughs) So it's, it's just when you're, it sounds easy when you're going to sell 30% of your company for a million dollars, it sounds great. But if you actually believe in the success of the company and where it could be, that, could add up to be, we talked about those multiples, all of a sudden they're selling it for 14 million. You're starting to take that down. That was $3 million at least for that. And that's where you're at right then. But that's just for on that, on that point today. And if you keep adding that up and it just becomes very, very expensive to do that. And that's why angel investors want that. If they are going to provide capital for equity, need to have the opportunity to make that 10 times their money at least. And so that's why it's not available to these small businesses because that might not be real realistic, but we're, we form till capital because we're like, well, that's okay. If that's not realistic, that's okay. If your business isn't going to be a hundred million dollars or a half a billion dollar business, how about we get to 10 million and let's start talking about dropping a million dollars to the bottom line or a million and a half. And then let's start thinking about what private equity could do. And then you could start, you could sell a piece and roll some equity and then you could keep going and it could become what you want it to be. And then that's, but we want to leave that choice up to the entrepreneur and let them make that choice when they get there. And we're trying to help them go from, you don't have a lot of choices to now you have a lot of choices. And that's our fundamental goal with what we're doing is let's get as many entrepreneurs as we can to that point. Let's make a good return on our investments and let's continue to build a community of people that care about entrepreneurs. And if we can do that, we'll be successful and they'll be successful. So in, in let's, let's, and I love it. And let's take it into a a step further and actually talk about this half million to a million dollar example of the, of cash flow. So I'm, I'm a business owner. I'm doing three, 4 million in revenue. I could have a home services business or just a manufacturing job shop, whatever it might be. And I've been making, you know, a half million, you know, anywhere between two hundred and five hundred thousand. Pay down my taxes. Hopefully, I got my taxes accounted for. I make make some distributions. I got my salary, and then I'm going. Okay, I know that in you know three to seven years, I'm going to want to do something with this. Right now, it's worth a million and million and a half. Pay down my taxes. You know, all that kind of good stuff. And I'm not looking like I've got a whole lot of options. I've kind of, whether they've gone through our educational material, let's hope they did and they understand this, but if they don't, they, they know that there's some inherent things that they could do that are pretty obvious, right? Like whether it's hiring a president, putting in a new ERP system, whatever, like they've gone to their bank, whether they've got some debt right now from, 
you know, the bank of, you know, whether they've bought some new machinery, whatever, you know, SBA conventional, whatever it might be. And the banker has not, I mean, the banker, bankers exhausted it. And one little uh, footnote on this, I, too many times I've heard business owners where whatever banker that they're talking to, they just take that at face value. And I say, do the exact opposite. Expect that they just told you whatever. They, the banker could be a salesperson, not even an underwriter, especially if they're working at a big box shop. Just ask 25 other ones and you're going to get 25 other answers. So, But assume that they've got some sort of level of debt. Now they're going, what do we do? How do you guys go in there? What does the process look like to have a discussion to what would the structure look like terms structure and then how do you help and what does that in like a relationship look like going forward once the once the, the situation's uh not, uh nailed down well we get well, usually when we meet a company they they're introduced through various members of our community is how we've gotten most of our um, introductions to companies there'll be somebody that we've built a relationship with that knows the business owner and knows that we're providing this type of growth capital. So we start that, that initial conversation with them and see where they're at, you know, ask them a couple of questions about their business, walk through their financials, see where they're at. And then once we see that and hear about what their growth plan is, then we, we go back and say, well, do, is this business in a, in a spot where they have, they're at or close to profitability, but, and do they have a really good plan for growth? And do we think that Patrick and I and our community of empire builders is what we call them and our ambassadors. Do we think we can help them achieve those growth goals with our community and with our capital? If we say yes to that, then we provide them with a term sheet. Our term sheet is non-binding. We, we provide it to them. And just in, in the spirit of transparency, it's one of our core values. We want them to understand what our terms are up front before we start taking their most valuable resource, which is their time. I mean, once we start going through, it's going to take some time to go through this and then also their money, because then we, we're trying to make sure they don't start incurring legal costs and doing all of those things before we really get in a good spot. So then if they sign that term sheet, then we go through a, a approximately 10 to 12 week process where we meet with them weekly, go through the whole due diligence process. And what we're really focused on is we just want to get to know the entrepreneur. We want to understand who they are, make sure that we align with their incentives and what their goals are and understand that we can help them. And then we start building that robust financial model. And we really, we map out free cash flow monthly for five years to really understand that, yes, this business is here today and this is where it can go going forward. And we're on the same page that these goals are reasonable and achievable and we can help you do this. And it, we go through that whole process transparently lay out our terms with our investments. And once that's there, then we go to our investment committee, get an approval and we, and that's where it goes. And if we have that approval, we provide the investment post-close. It's all about supporting the business. We're focused on doing some update meetings, getting their financials, updating our model, making sure that we're on the same page with them. And then really what, what problems are you having? We want to, we want to really focus on and celebrate the issues. Make sure that we understand what those are and find people in our community that can help address those issues. We know we don't have all the solutions. We're not some, we don't, we don't have every solution for every problem that you have, but hopefully we know somebody that can at least help. And if we can do that, hopefully we can get you over this massive hump to the point of where, yes, you can get to that $10 million mark and we're going to help you get there. And, but we're not going to be the ones that tell you what, how you have to do it. 
Yeah, and I will uh, spare the audience uh, too many details of my uh, our situation. Uh, we were factoring for a while for various reasons when uh, the financial crisis hit. And the banking relationship was like this. What are your receivables? Give them to us now. We'll maybe help you. And when you need money, we're not going to give it to you. And just cons- it, it's not a relationship, right? It was just there. How many ways could the bank mitigate the risk without helping us? In the, and we weren't financiers, right? So like you think about all the things that you're talking about. We had challenges. We had problems. We knew we had energy. We knew we could put the energy in the right areas, but we were never able to get the financial world and the capital to hit the road with the operational and the efficiencies and strategies that we had. So this gap that you're talking about is super personal for me because of that experience. And I think about Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship that you're talking about is different in how you're understanding finance versus just how many things do you have that we can take from you if this goes south. <laughs> it's just so different. Right. And, you know, and, and you know, the process that uh, Nick described that we go through, it's very important to us because we do take the time to um, get to know the business owners really well and the executive team and, and understand the business models. And we do it for two reasons. One is risk mitigation. Um, you know, our business model is we look to put in a dollar and we look to get two to three dollars back. We don't look to get 10 to a hundred dollars back. Um, and so we can't just do a spray and pray method where we invest in, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of deals and just play, play the statistics. Like we need to make sure that, you know, these are good operators. Cause the one thing I will, you know, well, I always say and uh, throw my stake in the ground on is like, we have zero tolerance for bad actors. So that's our number one job in underwriting. If there's any risk that we're going to be taken advantage of, we're out. Um, we just have zero tolerance for that. And the other reason we do this um, this underwriting is because is that support mechanism. So again, it works to help support the business owner in their journey and so forth. But again, it's just mitigating that risk that when they stumble along the way, I didn't say if, because I know they, everybody will stumble. Everybody will have a challenge, even in the best of economic times. When stumbles happen, do they have that ecosystem around them to help get through those those challenges? And so, as Nick talked about, you know, we like to think about this as celebrating issues and being able to work through through these things to to be able to get there. Um, but you said something, Patrick, that I think is huge. Is and both you guys did is that it's the story and it's the people that matter because yes. like I think about our situation and like we could explain. I mean, I remember when we were trying to refinance, like we met with fourteen banks. The amount of people that I explained our situation to at the whiteboard and what's going on with the SBA law and the different entities and where we need and like and like what we could do. And then I'd see it was either just a salesperson, they had no authority, or there's just an underwriter that didn't understand it. We, I believe, you know, I think it's important for you to say you, you have zero tolerance for bad actors because here we were. I think we could probably relate to a lot of these business owners where we were good actors, we had a good strategy, we had a good team could not figure out a way to connect the dots like you guys were talking about. And the banks did not care about the story. And if it was a story that was good and the salesperson liked it, it went to underwriting, that underwriting then went to their upper superiors and that superior then went to their, and then it was just literally a prospectus or a a spreadsheet in front of some random board that said yes or no, zero idea about our story. And it made a huge difference to us. That is the real tragedy of of uh, of our economy that goes completely untold. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of businesses we work with, they get they get a bit annoyed 
um, and turned off with all the chatter and talk about investing in startups and so forth. And like, look at, you know, here we are, we've got 20 or 40 employees and doing what, you know, and doing well in our community, but we need this type of help. And nobody's out here talking about, you know, resources to help us get through this because the challenge is, is that the vast majority of people on the outside of business ownership think that, you know, once somebody's got some decent revenues in hand, you know, Wall Street is open and available to them. They've got all sorts of financing mechanisms and so on and so forth. And the reality is they don't. I mean, I'm to the point now where I'd say, if you're not a billion dollar business, like it can be tough and the smaller it gets, you know, even a hundred million dollar business. I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, this was going on um, over 15 years ago. I worked with a publicly held company that was 50 million in revenues and they couldn't raise $4 million to complete an acquisition. That's nuts. Oh, it is nuts. That, you know, and, but it happens all the time. And it, it's well, and, a story that needs to be told. And, and now the fact that you had the Fed that is essentially just doing whatever the policies are that, the, I mean, we have, we're not in a, I mean, long story for a different day, but we're not in a free market necessarily anymore because the policies are dictating where the capital goes. And then you go with all the way down. And I wouldn't even say that like 99% of the listeners in, that are listening to this, even if you're doing 150, 200 million in revenue, you're not Wall Street like material. No. Even nope. that word doesn't even make any sense because you're going to get Wells Fargo's mid-market bankers. And they're going to look for deposits and they're going to look for some sort of you know loan structure or credit facility. Exactly. You know, and it just it, like the, the, it's it's all become so transactional is one of the big problems. And it's it's become the culture. And there's some there's some wonky stuff out there, but of course I'm pretty wonky in the world of finance, so I, I get a kick out of it. But th- there was a big transformation when the merchant banks, like the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanleys, when they did IPOs and they went public, it completely shifted the the risk spectrum of of you know who has the risk when they're doing deals and so forth. Back in the day, it used to be all the partners' money and they'd make decisions as partners. It's so very vested in that. It's extremely rare you'd ever even find an investment bank that's anywhere even close to that anymore. Um, They've all become very transactional and the cultures are, you know, go big, go home. You know, what are we going to shoot and eat and kill today? And it's, it's not about, it's not about the investment banks that were back in the day. I love the story of Ford Motor Company. It's one of the best prospectuses out there. Um, But their prospectus has like literally like over a hundred investment banks. Like everybody participated in that IPO. I mean, now you get a big bank on it. They don't want anybody on. They're forced to like partner up with others and so on and so forth. But, you know, what started in in America, you know, doing deals under, um, you know, the, the tree off of Wall Street and all that kind of stuff has become something very different these days. It's culturally very different. It's very transactionally oriented. The vast majority of players don't have um, the best interests, let alone any interests of the founding shareholders in mind. It's become a very upside down world. And, and, it's, and we, need to, we need to start, we need to do something about it because it's not a pretty outcome when it gets to be like this. Yeah, you and I, we could go down a whole, uh, just a couple cliff notes on this. I just got done reading all the president's bankers and then I also got done um, close to uh, Paul Volcker's book about called Changing Fortunes. It, lots of history on this stuff, fantastic material. And it just shows you how, like there was a gentleman that I interviewed. Uh, he's got the 40th largest bank in the US and his whole, he bootstrapped the whole thing and he's out of New York and his whole deal is to change this dynamic too. But the, 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 for the listeners, the purpose of this conversation, it shows you that 
even in the lower and middle market, you're dealing with a lot of sales reps that are working mm -hmm. for the commercial banks yeah. that they need assets in order to lend you the money. So by the time you finally get here to this point where they, you, you don't have a lot of people that truly understand cash flow, like you said, forward-looking discounted cash flow, what's the risk of this cash flow? The fact that there's so many advisors, even in the valuations, guys, when I started realizing that most of these valuation professionals do not have to ask the business owner, how's your management team? Do you have an ERP system? Oh, is it running on an AS400 or is it based in like literally timesheets? But they're going to place a risk on that company. I just don't even understand it. <laughs> it's yeah, just, it's, it's laughable when you start to peel back the onion, right? It's, like, it's, 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 ridiculous. it's so laughable, it's sad. I know. But, but I think it goes back to there's the, there's the capital gap, but there's the knowledge on business gap. Yeah. You're kind of like blending the two because the people that I've said it for, and people can't see me right now, but there's a Venn diagram that I'm making and you have people that understand capital and people that understand business. And there's like, I'm very, very minuscule people that understand both. They're in private equity firms and they can make a bunch of money because they understand finance. Well, that's the big joke. Like when we were talking about, you know, starting Hill Capital, I mean, anybody that I would talk to that has any background in, you know, an investment banking, private equity and so on and so forth, they just, you know, laugh me out of a room because they said, why would you bother doing this? It's, it's, it's as hard to do a $500,000 deal as it is to do a 5 million, let alone a 50 or a $5 billion deal. Matter of fact, the bigger the deals get, the easier they are. No, I, you know, like people look at our business model and like, really, you're spending over a hundred hours doing underwriting for what? $500,000. Like you're nuts. Like, and, and so what's the passion? Okay. I want to get Nick yeah. and Patrick, both of you guys, what is your passion and why do it? Cause I, and as I tee this up, I've had people say the same thing to me about why aren't you in private equity? Why aren't you investment banking? Cause you can make a lot more money. Right, you can make a lot more money, blah, blah, blah. Like I've, I've, I've had that come from so many people. I'm like, look at, if I want to make a lot of money, yes, I could have moved to New York, like right out of college and did the same thing and, and dot, da, da, da. But my senior year at Creighton university, we did a New York trip and I met the people there and some very intimate moments where there's a couple people that nearly kind of had tears in their eyes talking to our class that grew up in the Midwest, went to Creighton, went on to New York, and they always thought they'd get rich and come back home and live a real lifestyle. And now their kids are, you know, living in, in the middle of New York City, and they're, you know, paying ungodly amounts of money to put them to private school, and they were never able to break the binds to come back. You know, I mean, it, it just, it, it's tangential, but it's like, there's a really important point to all this because Adam Smith talked about that, uh, you know, about this. And one of my favorite economists, Russ Roberts, who does Econ Talk, and he wrote a book about, um, about Adam Smith. But there is a heck of a lot more motivators to people than money. And I look at our investor group. I look at our ambassadors, um, myself and Nick, and just a lot of the people that were around, the business owners. They have a lot of other interests than just making, you know, making money, right? They want to have an impact. They want to create a legacy. They want to do good. Um, and those are really important factors. And I think we're on trend right now because people are now starting to talk about that more, like social impact and so on and so forth. And that's really, really important because we have to realize that it's just not about, you know, ringing, ringing the register because money only does so much. I mean, if you listen to Warren Buffett, he talks about this all the time. 
You know, one of my best friends lives literally three doors down from him. He lives in the same house he grew up in. Um, you know, and so I just think we have to be realistic. And so that's why we're motivated by, because when we know we do well by the business owners, a lot of this is going to take care of itself. You know, if we look at like the business model, Hill Capital or whatever the case may be, we know that we do well by WareCorp and GoRoute <laughs> and Cache and other, the investments we've done so far, right? You, they're going to, you know, we're going to be able to do more and more of those and to be able to, to be more helpful. And we'll just, we'll do fine along the way. And, and that's what's important. That's what's, that's what's motivating. Um, because I just think the days of like, you know, online lenders, I think of, you know, there's some innovative models out there around fintech and, and I love it. And we pay close attention to those. But a lot of those business models are really no different than the payday lenders that are kind of the scourge of our, you know, of, of our consumer economy, right? And it's happening to small business owners. I mean, I can't tell you, we've seen so many companies that are paying 75, 110% interest, um, all in costs of capital because of the fees and all the hidden hooks and all that other type of stuff. Well, someone's so, going to make some money somewhere if it's 0% interest. <laughs> right. Well, but you know, and, and what they'll tell you, because a lot of them are publicly held or they were up until COVID hit. Now they've had to sell or go under, but you know, they're Wall Street companies and they would talk about this, about how they're playing a statistics game, right? They got to charge, you know, these companies 70% to make up for, you know, the eight, eight of the 10 that are going to go under default. Well, thanks. That's, that's not, that's just, it's not right. It's not fair. We can do it better and smarter. So, um, well, I think, yeah, obviously you can hear Patrick's passion for it. And I had just seen it growing up in a, I grew up in like a small town of 500 people and you could see the power of a small business in those types of towns. They're like the only jobs in town. And it's what drives a lot of the donations, supporting the community and building up that community. You can see it in farmers. My whole family's farmers. They're all business owners trying to, it's a different type of environment, obviously there, but they're trying to make it themselves. And I think I kept hearing stories of businesses that couldn't get funding. They would work with bankers. You hear from bankers too, like, oh, it's a great business, but we can't give them the money they and it's just because there's so many different regulations, obviously, especially after the financial crisis, there's even more regulations associated with that. And you kept hearing these things and seeing them on the, on the edges. And then when I met with Patrick, it was like, oh, here's somebody trying to solve this problem. And then I got really excited about it. And, I, and then now what I'm it's so lucky is you get to hear these entrepreneurs share their stories and their passions about what they're doing and building you see the employees that they have, and then you realize that you could help them achieve these goals and get involved. And it's not in a way that's taking over their business or taking it from them. I don't, I don't want to buy their business from them. I just want to help them get to the point where somebody really, they can make that choice to sell it and, and for it to be meaningful to them at that point and know that they, like we, we say, building bridges to legacy and legacy is about those choices. And that, you can leave it when you're 65 and decide to sell. You can feel good about what you did. Or you can d decide, I'm going to have my family run this for a long time. Or even a long-time employee run it for a long time that feels very passionate about it and feel good about all those years that you spent doing it. And in the meantime, continuing to add jobs to the economy, continuing to fuel growth and getting people out of bad economic situations. It's just everything about entrepreneurship feels like a solution to a lot of problems that we have. 
Well, I think what's when you when you really break down intentionality too, and being intentional behind this is like you have to understand some of this stuff. Like you can't avoid it anymore if you're a business owner and you truly want that seven times EBITDA and to get that legacy that you just mentioned, Nick. I mean, I think about like at the base case scenario because I love control so much and I love my choices and my freedom. It's like. If instead of having to hope that someone comes out with this bag of money out of the blue offer that aligns perfectly, or you know, like your options of shutting down, doing nothing, and leaving, or selling the three X on a broker that puts you on a listing and just jams you through a sale, or you've got some sort of you know third party and private equity firm that comes in, knows how to take your valued asset and triple it because you didn't necessarily know how to take it to the next level. I, that stuff happens and it's okay if you choose it but if you didn't know that you were going to choose it and i think about going when i the reason i started this of being intentional if you went to you guys and said i'm going to go from a half million to a million or two million in ebitda i'm going to finance it this way because it, at a million or two million you can almost predict if you do the value drivers that you choose you could do an esop based on based on the discounted cash flow that you guys have probably already you know worked on and so you could finance it, do the right strategies, and then almost guarantee the fact that you could do an ESOP. And all that's within your control every single day. You don't have to wait for the marketplace, what's going on in the... I mean, all that stuff, all that noise becomes important, but more noise than actually something that you're... It's a hope and a prayer. I mean, it just... you know, Even if you didn't want to do that, you could do that and you still have a healthy company that gives you other options. It just... It's mm-hmm. about creating those choices, like you said. Yeah, very much so. And, and, you know, and that is our, that is our motivation. You know, we, we knew, we've always said all of our stakeholders, shareholders, everybody in Hill Capital, we've always known we need to create a long-term sustainable economic engine. So without a doubt, we need to have, and we've set our investments up so we can have a good risk adjusted return, you know, without a doubt. But it's also balancing that out with the community and making sure that all stakeholders are are treated fairly and we live by our core values of transparency and being collaborative and you know and those are the key pieces because then it becomes sustainable long term you know there's a lot of people who've tried models in, in and around finance that have burned out because they've burned too many people along the way um, you know and we're getting, we're seeing it right now in fintech i mean you, there's only so long you can go you know, charging hidden fees and all this other type of stuff. And, you know, the gig's going to be up at some point in time. And that's, you know, and so that, that's, anyway, that, that's important to us is that we, we're going to not only have some positive impact in the communities, but we're going to do it in a way that's um, long-term and sustainable. And one of our things and why we're sharing insights with you today and love to collaborate with, you know, with people on these subject matters, because we don't want to be one of a very few that are doing that. We want more and more people to be um, doing investments in better and smarter ways, because it's just going to make the ecosystem and our, in our economies all that much more robust. So I know we're uh, we're a little short on time as we're going to wrap up here, but a couple of specific questions that I'm curious on, and then we can t- talk about Empire Builders, where to get in touch with you guys, is um, the type of investors that you're getting the money from too, because we talk. That's one thing that I think we haven't touched on, and then also what is the what is the big vision for Hill Capital? Because I know you guys have got a big vision behind this, but the types of investors that are giving you the money, how you're paying them back as well, and how you guys get paid. I think is important because I've given some of that context and uh, on the other types of structures like private equity and ESOPs and stuff. So 
who would be giving you the money and why are they doing it? And then when and how do you, does the management uh, team and the general partnership of Hill get paid? And because that, that truly shows the motives that are aligning with what you're saying. Yeah. So investor wise, it's all entrepreneurs, fellow entrepreneurs that have built the business before they've had success in that business. And that's the, that those are the types of people that we, that we targeted that resonate with this story. I mean, similar to, Ryan, your story, being able to resonate with that and seeing what's happening out in the marketplace and realizing there's an issue, knowing that you could contribute capital to be able to help solve that issue. And so we found entrepreneurs that are really passionate about giving that capital in. Now, our structure is, is similar to other fund structures where we have LPs and we're the, we're the GP, but we've also structured it a little bit different where we don't have a management fee a lot of the ways that we get paid are are built on on carries, and okay. so that basically above a certain set investment return, a minimum investment return, whatever term you want to use, then we start to be paid upfront with that. And we've we've structured some different, some kind of more complicated ways to be able to up front those fees and be able to pay that back. But it's the way we structure it's really to align when similar to what we did with our what we do with our investments when they're successful we're successful and that's mm-hmm. the way we want to structure our investments when we get paid when the investors get paid and that will work out long term that will be good for everybody and yep. so we continue to focus on that and try to innovate in ways that we get paid so we don't have to do the very standard 2 and 20 structure yep and i think this is super important for every every listener that's that's tuning in because this is what i've hammered home guys that the owners need to ask this question until the person on the other side is super uncomfortable right. and creativity is the name of the game. Now I mean, this Sonny Vanderbeck who's on the show from Satori capital. He has an indefinite hold period. He raised a bill over a billion dollars and said, I'm not giving you your money back. <laughs> so like that's way different than a general partner. That's got a, a seven to 10 year timeline. So asking these questions truly shows mm-hmm. how to compare the, the, the different investors. Cause I think the creativity and aligning the things with what you're saying, with what how things are structured is crazy important. Yeah, it's absolutely critical because they, you know, business owners may not care today, but at some point they're going to care and care a lot because someday, you know, something's not going to go quite right or to plan or whatever. And then the rubber is going to meet the road when the, the, the true stripes of the underlying shareholders of where that capital came from um, yeah. are going to come out. You know, yep. and, and that's why, you know, if somebody's taking down money from an institutional source of capital whose funders also happen to be other institutional sources, these are all, you know, these are all people that are being paid salaries to grind out a return and to get their money back on the terms that they said. And they don't have the incentives to necessarily be strategic. But, you know, our underlying investor base is, you know, business owners like Nick talked about, and that's really important, you know, and that's why we're here and to, to support these businesses. I mean, and that, yeah, it's, a, it, it is absolutely critical, you know, and that's, again, I not to keep getting too much into the philosophy of this. I, as, as you can tell, I get a hard, I have a hard time staying away from the philosophy of it, but the money, the money, the investment capital has gotten too disconnected from its source right? That's what we are looking to change with Hill Capital. You know, when, when it's all of a sudden like money that's going into a pension fund and the pension fund is outsourcing it to a manager and a manager's then reinvesting into another manager that's investing as an LP in a venture capital fund and they're the ones that are supporting ABC company, it's too disconnected. 
And so I, I, I found out guys that yeah. like went through my, through my insane curiosity of pulling this string, I found out that no one's responsible for this shit. And it's just right. like mind boggling for me. I'm like, <laughs> wait a second. So you have the pension fund managers who need to make a return, but they've over uh, leveraged themselves trying to get, get the return back because they're not funded enough for their liabilities. So like everybody's covering their ass. And then by the way, I'm trying to find someone on the, uh, that I can interview about. So they now have, uh, instead of CDOs that were packaged up, oh, shitty yeah. mortgages, yeah. they're now doing that with leveraged buyouts from uh, the top private equity firms. Oh yeah. So yeah. Like, it's just, it, but no one's responsible. So you can't actually touch someone and say, okay, you invested something. Okay. And here's your return. And Jack Stack was on my show talking about this and he's just like, He's so over the Inc. 5,000. No one's making any money. The you know pre-revenue $10 million valuations. He's like, someone somewhere needs to make money and yeah. they need to return those profits to other people. I mean, it's just... I know, I can get going too, Patrick. <laughs> just, <laughs> just. Yeah, and, you know, but it, it all does. Business owners need to care about this. Entrepreneurs new, do need to care about this. And even if they're just, mm -hmm. you know, startup idea in the back of the napkin, this all affects them way more than they probably fully appreciate because it's, it's their access to capital and who's going to be their business partner. And are they going to be pushed into a corner someday where they're ousted out of their company? I mean, I have more stories about people ousted out of their companies than I do of people that rang the bell as founding shareholders. And that's extremely sad. That's ridiculous. We're in the United States of America, right? So these things are very, very important. But, you know, a big step forward is just knowledge base. I mean, your work is so critical to the small business economy and, and for entrepreneurs, you know, to just have, you know, um, some base knowledge of, of how these things work and how they happen, I think can, can take care of a big chunk of it. Because it's yeah. just we got to get Education. we got to get rid of the hoodwinking. That's that's yeah. the thing. Education's the the great equalizer, isn't it? Yes. Two questions for both of you guys. Um, one is I want you guys to hear. I want to hear both your guys' definition of intentional, and then the second one uh, is give me an explanation uh, or the listeners a de uh, an overview of Empire Builders, and then the best place to get in touch with you guys and to follow you long term. Well, I think intentional is really just a is a that's why we do that free cash flow model is to be able to know that there we have intention on what the plan is, at least from numbers perspective. I, I, being an accountant, I go back to those numbers. And when I started first looking at angel investing and realizing there really are no numbers to anything, I started to get a little hesitate a little bit like, okay, this type of investing is a different type of risk that I'm not willing to take. But when I can at least see where the numbers are today, maybe they don't look that great, but let's map this out. So we're on the same page of how it's going to end. And if we're, if I'm an equity investor, I could put a 500,000 in and we could never talk about what the end game is. And all of a sudden we get to the end game and we might not be on the same page. And now the emotional cost of that equity is going to get really expensive. And so I just want to map that out all the way to the end. So we know transparently what's going to happen at the end. And yeah, the path that we get there could be completely different, but at least we know what the end goal is. Be Patrick. Yeah, I one I, I agree with that. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting question. What comes to mind is just habits and being consistent. You know, there are a couple of recent books out like uh, Tiny Habits and Atomic Habits and so forth. But it's it's um, you know building in that process to 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 be consistent to to execute onto something. 
What's the best place to get in touch with you guys? You may give you a little. Yeah. Well, Nick, why don't you give a preview of Empire Builders and how people can plug into that? Yeah. So we do uh, Empire Builders is the open to the public event that we've been doing online since COVID happened. We were doing it in person before. 100 to 150 entrepreneurs were really focused on curated networking and making those connections. I know as accountants, it was always hard to make those connections in the accounting networking that we did. So we tried to make it really, really easy. And we had a lot of success doing that in person. Well, now we're going to do it online until we feel comfortable, until everybody's safe going back to doing the in-person events. Our next event is September 17th. I'm not sure if this podcast will be published by then, but we will do another one by in January. And so if people are interested, you can go to our website. It's hillcapitalcorp.com. There's Empire Builders. Click on it. Register. There'll always be a registration for the next event that we do. So definitely go on to our website. You can reach us on... We're on all the social media channels. My email address is ne and then at hillcapitalcorp.com. So just my initials. And that's the best place to reach me, really. And But social media, anywhere like that as well, works. Yeah, and likewise, we have the same email schematic. It's right on uh, right on our website uh, as well. So um, plus, we're both very active on LinkedIn. And I would just say that we are very open uh, networkers. You know, especially with entrepreneurs. You know, even if it's not a fit for our fund, even when we know it, we'll take the time to jump on a call and do whatever we can to help point someone in the right direction. We support a lot of organizations and events like One Million Cups and the Women's Business Alliance and um, all sorts of things to make sure that we're participants in the broader ecosystem. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we have to look at 50 things and, you know, we can only invest in one or two of those 50. But for the other 48, we, in the background, in our pipeline report, um, it's never dead or, you know, not available. We say it's on the shelf. Uh, just for some reason, it wasn't a fit for them or for us today to make that investment. And so um, we go to great lengths to try to help people out wherever they are in their journey, whether or whether or not we can invest. Awesome, guys. This has been fun. And I want one last note is I, because I, I asked it, and I don't think we covered it, is you guys have big visions for Hill Capital, right? This $10 million fund is not the one thing. I think you guys have mentioned that this is something that you want to prove the business model and you want to truly make an impact. So uh, we don't have to go much into it, but I wanted to make sure that everybody understood kind of the gravity, I think, of what you guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think we can leave it at that. I, you know, we we do want to really prove out what we're doing here to be a catalyst for uh, better access to growth and to help solve for uh, that capital gap long term, without a doubt. So we are always interested in talking with people and collaborating and thinking about where and how, you know, whether it's our business model today or if it's something different tomorrow about how we can continue to work towards um, bringing better capital and, and access to capital um, to, to the broader community. So thanks so much for coming on, guys. This has been a blast. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for your work, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Nick and Patrick. Growth capital is a super intriguing topic. It really makes sense within context of where you're trying to go. If you're trying to go from a half million to two million in EBITDA and your cash flow can't afford the growth, or you're trying to figure out how to balance taxes, distribution, plus the right 
correct financing, whether it's conventional, private equity, or growth capital, I highly suggest you check out our virtual cohorts. We have a kickoff call on October 13th. We're going to be diving into valuations, different exits, deal structures, and then strategic planning and value growth. This really makes sense in context of where you're trying to go. If you're going to try and just jam financing down so that way you can continue to grow without a ultimate plan, I highly recommend against it. You should really understand what is your target valuation and what are the top couple end results that you want from that or the choices that you want to create because then something like this growth capital and then tying that to the specific strategies that are increasing your EBITDA and multiple are just awesome. It makes a ton of sense. And I hope that this is giving you more context to how the world of financing and valuation and value growth works. Go to arcona.io to check it out. Otherwise, I will see you next week.